And so we're in James chapter 2. We're making progress. And I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 7. And we have looked closely at what James commands in the previous two sections. We read in verse 22, but be doers of the word, not hearers. And we continue in that theme regarding the doing part of Christianity. And this time it's about how we relate to others, how we relate to others. And you'll see and hear about partiality being forbidden, and we'll come to realize why that's the case. So, look with me at James chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's pray together. Lord, indeed, we do ask for your Spirit's guidance and help as we come to grips with the truth of this passage. Would you help us that way? Help us to apply it that we together as your people would be not just a welcoming church, but welcoming in Jesus' name without showing partiality. Form and shape us as your people, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The history of church seating is something that is really fascinating, church seating. And we have a case in the Scottish Reformation of a stool being thrown at clergy the first time the clergy used the common prayer book. You know, maybe if some stools or chairs got thrown, maybe the preaching would be better and doctrinally accurate in the church. There's uh, stories, of course, of partiality shown in church seating. You know, in the old world, in England, uh, someone told me about, uh, during the between services, somebody told me about a church she visited in London that had a separate entrance for poor people. The rich could come in and take a seat, and the poor people had to hit a stairway and go up where they would not be in sight during a worship service. And of course, there was the practice of selling or leasing pews. This was a great fundraiser in the church of old, and enterprising clergy and churches brought that practice from the old world to the new world. And so if you visit a church in the Northeast, an older church, that hadn't been turned into a pizzeria yet, 
if you visit one of these churches, you'll see box-style seating with a common entrance, and sometimes the wealthy would, would have a key to the end of their pew, and they would unlock it and be able to go in. And so the preferential seating was for the prominent and the wealthy, and this was rented out to them or even deeded to certain families, and they would come into worship and sort of traipse down to the front. And by the way, the good seating was in the front because you would want to view the clergy and you would want to hear the sermon. Of course, we're talking about before PA systems. My, how times have changed. We just give away these seats. <laughs> we're just giving them away. And it's good, good to have some Folks up front today, you know, these are, these are still the premier, premier seats. But uh, so this was a, a function of really trying to have the families of influence up front and the poor sort of put away. And this, this all took place in the church. And James 2 was already written. And we read here this specific command, my brothers, show no partiality. Show no partiality. And so there was this practice of renting or selling seats for prominent people. Oh, and why you would want to sit up front, not just to hear the sermon. You'd want to sit up front because usually that's where the heat source was. And so if you, if you sat towards the back or they would put poor people at the back, that, that's where you would be cold. And so we think about this idea and, you know, where we read this prohibition against partiality and showing that, and we would say, that's certainly that's not me. I would never, I would never do that. I would never show partiality. I would never judge people based on appearances. Mm, now we're all guilty because we make these intuitive judgments, don't we? And sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. We don't even know we're doing it. We're making these intuitive judgments over whether people are like us or not because you see we all operate from this principle that in point of fact, if people were more like us, the world would be a better place, wouldn't it? If more people were like me, the world would be a better place. And for some of us, we just say, I can't help it. That's just who I am. I have the spiritual gift of judgment. <laughs> and I need to exercise it. Oh, there's help for you. There's help for all of us who exercise this partiality, which is another word for discrimination, which is another word for prejudice. And on a more serious note, abortion is the ultimate prejudice. Abortion is the ultimate racism because judgment is rendered uh, before someone is born, before someone is even born. And so it's the ultimate partiality, racism, and prejudice. To judge on the basis of the surface is what this passage goes against. And we know this was a problem in the ancient world, otherwise James wouldn't address it. So we're going to look at 
How do we stop it? What help is there for us as Christians that we wouldn't just continue to judge people based on their appearance, or we wouldn't show this kind of partiality? What help is there for us? Because you see, the gospel is here to help us. The gospel is here to help us, and there are three aspects of the gospel that help us with our judging and partiality, and we're going to talk about each of them this morning, and I'm going to begin with the fact of the gospel reconciles, and there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. So, the gospel reconciles, and this is in verses 1 through 4. And James writes, my brothers, he's writing to the church, so this is in-house, those who share the faith, in-house instruction here, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, we might look at this as a minor sin, but actually what James is showing us here and what he's implying is that Belief and faith in the gospel actually runs counter to the very nature of what the gospel is. That if we show partiality in this intuitive judgment or prejudice that we have, that it runs counter to the gospel message. Now, what do I mean by gospel? Well, the gospel is the announcement of good news. The gospel is the announcement that Christ became incarnate, came to this earth to rescue sinners. The gospel is a communication of God's love and generosity towards us and His mercy in that the wrath due to us for sin fell on Christ rather than us. So that is what the gospel is, and it's by having faith in that message of Christ's atoning sacrifice that reconciles us to God. You see, the fundamental problem of all people is that we are alienated from God, that we are at enmity with a holy God because we have inherited a sin nature. And the resolution, solution, is the reconciling power of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. The gospel is the way you come into the Christian life. The gospel is applies not just to how you come into the Christian life in terms of conversion, but the gospel also, that power that drew you in is the power that keeps you there and the power that takes you all the way home. We are not done with that gospel message and its complex of truths at conversion as if we come to Christ and then the rest is up to us. No, the rest is an ongoing application of moving further into the truth of the gospel message. So the gospel is for unbelievers and believers. The gospel is the way we are discipled and the way that we come into the Christian life. So that's what I mean by the gospel. And it has this reconciling power to bring together those who don't belong together, to reconcile. And the situation here in the ancient world was that there was partiality being shown within the church. And we get the play-by-play -play here in verses 2, 3, and 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring, fine clothing, comes into your assembly, and the word used for assembly there is synagogue, so Christians were probably meeting in synagogues at that time, 
And what we have is we have someone comes in and find clothing, and then a poor man in shabby or dirty clothing also comes in. And we see they receive different treatment, don't they? They receive different treatment. Now, in the ancient world, there was no fast fashion. So in verse 2, remember, they, they cast lots for Jesus' clothing. So you've got to understand the value of clothing and the way people communicated and projected wealth was through their clothing, through their jewelry. Some of that is still true today. But you understand some of the context now, and you see there's a difference in how these two people who come in are treated. Verse 3, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say you sit in a good place, which would be up front. It would be up front. And then to the poor people, we say, we don't even want to see you sit at my feet. You're dirty. Go into this other place. We don't want to look at you. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So that kind of behavior is condemned because, again, it runs counter to the gospel. What is true about the gospel? It's been said at the foot of the cross, that blood-soaked ground, it is level ground. And what James is up implying here, what he's communicating, is that commonality in the faith is more important than any other identity that a person might have. There's several ways we can sort of derive our identity, uh, by our ethnicity, by our race, by our gender, and all of these, James is communicating, are subsumed under whether you're in the forever family. Because once you're in the forever family, these other things, they don't make that big of a difference. I mean, think about it for a moment. You have more in common with someone who doesn't speak your language or even know that Texas exists, which is probably a tragedy, <laughs> than you do your next-door neighbor who maybe you share some values with, but who doesn't know Christ. And so the communication here is that the rich-poor distinction is erased or subsumed under, more accu accurately, the wonder of the gospel's reconciling power. You see racial differences, socioeconomic differences, political differences. Yes, it's an election year. Political differences are subsumed under something greater that has come along, and that is how you are related to the cross of Jesus Christ. And this point is made by the Apostle Paul. Go to Galatians chapter 3, and I'll read to you verses 27 through 29. In Galatians chapter 3, listen to what Paul writes here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now listen to the casting away of the distinctions. Because see, in Galatia, the problem was people, false teachers had come in and they had said, not only do you need to be a good Christian, but to be a good Christian, you've got to practice the Jewish rituals. And listen to how Paul deals with this. 
Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See, what Paul writes about is what James is implying here, that the commonality of the gospel is greater than anything that would separate us. Any way we would try to make distinctions or show partiality or show who's in or show who's out, any of that is subsumed under the power of the gospels reconciling us to God. And surely the church must be the last bastion where through the cross we understand that we have been brought together as people, that sinners like us are brought together without judging each other, without this intuitive prejudice that we throw out there or the partiality that we show, that all are welcome here to explore what a relationship to Jesus Christ looks like. I mean, think about it for a minute. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The reason why our culture cannot figure out the racial question is because race becomes ultimate. Race is ultimate. Gender is ultimate for identity formation if you don't have something greater. And something greater has come. Someone greater has come, namely Jesus Christ. And he is the power for reconciling us to God and reconciling whatever separates us. He brings together through the power of the gospel. So the gospel reconciles. Where's the help for us? If we show partiality, we remember that person may be different from me. But we have something in common, our need of a Savior. And that need has been met only in Christ. So... The gospel reconciles, but as well, this good news, this message of good news also reverses things. The gospel reverses. This is in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? The gospel has this wonderful reversal that the more we judge by the surface, the more God will embarrass us and show us that our prideful judgments are wrong. He will do that as a demonstration of his power, and I'll get into that in a moment. But the gospel has this power to bring together, yes, but the gospel also has this power to reverse worldly goals, priorities, and the world's way of doing things. The gospel upsets this. Um, and J Jesus speaks of this in Mark chapter 8. And I want you to hear really about, as it were, the economy and the way things are done in the kingdom and the power of this reversal. In Mark chapter 8, and I'll read to you verses 34 through 36. So Mark chapter 8, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
Listen to this reversal. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Do you hear the reversal there? That is something that the gospel brings this reversal, that the world's values, priorities, and goals are set on their head, are turned upside down. That's the power of the gospel. Uh, this is seen in uh, the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. We think the rich man has everything. The rich man does. He has everything in this life. Lazarus has nothing. And then what happens? They both die. And there is a great reversal through the power of the gospel. And the rich man has nothing. And the poor man, Lazarus, has everything. And this is spoken about as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. Listen to how the gospel upsets our goals, priorities, our ways of judging, our standards for judging, our prejudice, our partiality, our favoritism. Listen to how this upsets all that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now, why would God do that? That just makes no sense. Why, why would God intentionally choose the weak to shame the strong? Those who were not of noble birth, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, we arrogantly pridefully think our judgments are ultimate and infallible. And when we do that, God, by His grace, will delight to make a fool out of you. And that's His grace. That's His love. That's His mercy to you, reminding you that it is His choice, not ours. You know, before I went to seminary, Tracy and I were involved in an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. It's called Crew now, and it primarily campus ministry, and that's what we were doing. And in order to do that ministry, you had to raise financial support. So you had to have these meetings with people. And this is a little old school. It's some years ago, I had a three-ring notebook that had pictures and kind of vision, and we would meet with people and raise prayer support and financial support. And I remember one time we met with this young family, and they had several kids, and you could kind of tell they didn't have a lot. 
and we're leaving that appointment. They were kind of, you know, we're out at that level where you're meeting with friends of friends of friends. And anyway, so we, we left that meeting, and they, they were nice enough. They walked us to the car, and I, I, I gave a good presentation. Don't worry. And, and anyway, they walked us to the car, and I said we'd follow up with them, you know, whatever. And, and it felt like a brush-off. And, and once the car door shut and we drove away, I, I, I told Tracy, I felt like they were saying, have fun storming the castle. You know, it's a line from the Princess Bride movie, have fun storming the castle. We're not going to help you. Have fun storming the castle in the ministry that God called you in. And so, uh, you know, I don't think they're going to help, whatever. So I call them a couple days later. God made a fool out of me. They came up big, joined our monthly support group, and away we were, you know, totally unexpected. Then there was another one I had, another meeting I had, prominent businessman. Not going to use his name because you would know his name. Prominent businessman. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to tell him how much money we have left per month. And he can write the whole check. I'm just going to tell him how much monthly support we have left because I know he could write the check for that. So we meet. I give another good presentation. And I'm thinking, home run. I mean, I'm in this big office. Somebody walked me into his office. He's sitting behind his big old desk. I'm sitting in the chair in front of the... I'm thinking, "Mm mm-hmm. $25 $25 a month. And what I later found out, I was disappointed. What I later found out is he never refused a meeting, never refused a meeting from someone who was seeking support, and he always supported at $25 a month. So he had probably hundreds of people he was supporting per month at $25 a month. And I tell you those two stories just to remind myself and especially to remind you, you don't know the whole story. Your judgments, my judgments, just like I blew it twice there, they're not infallible. And that God will delight to prove us wrong as a demonstration of his power and a reminder of how the gospel upsets the world's standards. So the gospel reconciles and the gospel reverses. One more point here, the gospel rebukes. Look at this in verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? To blaspheme there is to not bring glory to, to dishonor. And what's being communicated here is James is pointing out, and most of the members of the early church would have been poor, and somehow they're really impressed when the rich people are coming to church, but he's reminding them that Jesus identified with the poor, that Jesus was poor. So if you treat the poor badly, You are treating Jesus badly. And God calls us through the gospel. And you see, we don't earn our way. 
We don't earn our way. And with the same grace and mercy that God appraises us, so we are called to appraise others. Our judgments fallible, God's truthful. I'll tell you one more story, making a fool out of myself. We worshiped in a school before we came into this facility, and it was over at Cibolo Creek Elementary School where the Valero is. Good days, good days in that school. A lot of hard work setting up, taking down every, every Sunday. And I tell you that because we worshiped in a cafetorium, and you could really see people coming. In fact, the imagine how mortifying this is, the entrance to the cafetorium, which is a word, it's a cafeteria and an auditorium kind of blended together. The entrance would have been like in that corner over there. So, so if you were late, it, it was kind of a parade. <laughs> kind of a parade. And, and here we are. We're a church that we're desperate to grow. We're just kind of getting going and beginning. And, and I see somebody come in, you know, from a distance. And I'm, I'm younger at the time. And... Uh, so I'm thinking, man, they are clearly over 50. They're clearly old. <laughs> this is why I'm thinking to my young self. But they have two little kids with them. They have two little kids with them. So after the service, you know, putting on the charm, you know, that whole thing, and, and, and meeting them, and I see them coming from, you know, I watch them come in. I'm seeing them come in, and I'm like, I'm observing the gate, the walk, the creases. And so I introduce myself to him and I say, hmm, they have two little cute kids with them. I say, how old are your grandkids? <laughs> oh, yes, I did. <laughs> I grandparented them. They told me, well, these aren't our grandkids. These are our kids. And that was the last time I saw them. <laughs> our judgments, our partiality, our ways of thinking we are right when we are negotiating these sorts of things are not ultimate. And we put a lot of confidence in them. I thought for sure those were their grandkids. How foolish we can be. And what James calls us to here is to, for a moment, now understand, this is not a suspension of ethical principles or what God has commanded. This is a suspension of our intuitive partiality or the favoritism that we would tend to show our kind of people, however you define that. And instead, it's a call for us to remember that the gospel is the great equalizer. And we're all desperate for the salvation that God gives us in Christ, and that makes us have something in common with any fellow Christian, no matter their race or socioeconomics, or politics, and how foolish we can be thinking our judgments are ultimate. 
So let's make Trinity and let's continue to be a kind of place where all are welcome to come in and explore. Someone may ask, they sort of connect the dots, are you an affirming church? If by affirming you mean we affirm what God doesn't, absolutely not. But anyone is welcome to come in our doors and explore what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, walk with Him, follow Him, submit to His will and His ways, and be discipled together. This is our calling as a church, and James brings it out here because partiality runs counter to the reconciling power of the gospel, the fact that the gospel reverses and stands over us to rebuke us. Let's pray together. Lord, how thankful we are that indeed you call us as your people to be a people who don't see our judgments as ultimate, but instead that we together would trust you and would bridge the gulf between differences that we have as you have bridged the ultimate gulf between sinners and a holy God through Jesus Christ. Thank you that you do not judge us harshly, but instead offer grace and mercy to us. And may we show the same kind of grace and mercy to whoever walks into the doors of our church or of our life, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.